This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Live podcast. This is our second episode as we continue to discuss Paulo Quillu's world-famous book, The Alchemist. Today's episode is called The Alchemist, The Allegory, and The Argument. Apparently, we're going to go with alliteration. <laughs> and we want to do this book very differently than we've done the other books in the past because this book is unique and it's meant to be read differently than other books. Honestly, I don't think it's really in the spirit of Koedu to analyze this book in a traditional way. So, for this book, we're going to really tone down a lot of the literary analysis, and today we're really only going to highlight the one key point, well, the one key literary point, that this is an allegory. And an allegory is a story where everything in the story represents something besides what it actually is. Well, before I respond to that, which I will in a second, we are going to not have our Christy fun fact today, but we're going to have our Christy give us a phrase in Portuguese fact today. (laughs) I have no idea why you persist in this, but let me just say this. I'm going to give us a fato divertido, that's Uh a fun fact in Portuguese, uh, about you. So, a few years ago, uh, Gary and a good friend of ours, Danny Avery, took a group of students to Spain to visit the beautiful community of, well, area of Andalusia, and they spent a day, I would never have done this, on an olive plantation. And just for the record, I don't know why people eat those things. Olives are awesome, and, and I guess I'll be honest and upfront. Uh, olives are a point of marital discord for us. 
I love olives. I think they're awesome. Christy hates them. It makes ordering pizza difficult sometimes, you know, but hey, sometimes you have to push through in life. But yes, I was in the Andalusian region of Spain and we went way up into the mountains. Um, and uh, I'm from the Midwest and in the summertime, you can drive for miles and see nothing but corn. Well, in that part of Spain, you drive for miles up and down mountains and you see nothing but olive trees discouraging oh some of them are hundreds and hundreds of years old they've survived many centuries oh that's pretty cool that is cool and anyway uh fresh olives are great and fresh olive oil is great just saying a little point of contention (laughs) but anyway getting back to the book um and talking about allegories um for me one of the most clear examples of an allegory is animal farm in that story, each animal is kind of a person present in a communist system. The horses are the workers. Uh, the donkey represents the intelligentsia. And, of course, the pigs are the members of the Communist Party, with the worst one being Stalin himself. That's exactly it in itself. You know, Nobel Prize Egyptian writer, who I would like to quote because the story takes place in Egypt, he go. said that an allegory... The main thing was to remember that it's not to be taken literally, and it's there's a great lack of comprehension if you try to read it that way. So what's great about The Alchemist and how it differs from like maybe uh, Animal Farm or even some of the other classical, we think of Aesop's fables as being allegories, is that this one is very much designed to be about you, as in me, as in the reader. You're supposed to make yourself or draw yourself or write yourself into this story as the main character. So you are Santiago and living in Andalusia, even if you're in the Midwest, is your journey and your life story. It's a theory on how you should confront and engage life and how you should do it in a positive, fulfilling way. The journey to the treasure is our journey, my life and your life. And this is where his argument is very serious because the first thing he's saying, and you have to take this as the premise of everything else in the book, is that there is a treasure for your life. And it's a treasure uniquely created just for you. And he calls it your personal legend and it's your personal legend to find it it's not something that you get if you're quote privileged or from a special community or place or birth you know designation it's from god allah the universe the universal soul he calls it all these things because he doesn't want you to get bogged down in any one tradition or way of discussing things or you know take the con of link connotative language in any one direction his point is it's not a man-made institution and so because it's not a man-made institution kind of like the concept of freedom man didn't give it and man can't take it it's your legend i think it's interesting that part of the appeal of this book is that you put yourself in it you are the santiago you put yourself in the middle of the book uh, that's a great idea for a writer to work in there because of, after teaching psychology for more years, and I'm going to tell anybody, what I found out, people love the topic and the subject in the class because all we do is talk about them. 
Yeah. And we always do that to some degree in stories, but this one is taking it to the next level. Right. It's an actual necessary part of the story for you to make yourself a participant in it. Right. And decide, okay, where is my Andalusia? And where is, who is my Melchizedek? And what is my... You know, what is my pyramid? You're supposed to be able to fill in these blanks. Well, I will say that to me, coming from a scientific perspective, because, you know, in psychology, we do a lot of research methods and you have to prove behaviors. Anyway, it seems that some of what he talks about uh, is difficult to accept. It comes across as really mystical. Uh, But this book is his argument or theory about what each person should do if they want to find their treasure, uh, as he calls it. We might say purpose or calling or meaning or fulfillment. Um, It's a promise, but it's also a challenge. And he's saying there's a treasure out there. The universe wants you to have it, but it's your responsibility. No one else is going to find it for you. You have to go for it yourself. Right. And he's going to kind of say along the way, that most people forget that, you know, that kind of gets lost right. in their life. Mm-hmm. Because the book is so unique, uh, I would like to uh, honor, we would like to honor the spirit of Quedu. So we created what we're calling the Alchemist Project. Uh, my classes are doing it probably against their will. Uh, but, <laughs> Always. <laughs> yeah. But I would like to, to suggest or recommend or encourage really all of our listeners to consider taking what we're going to call the Alchemist Challenge. So, Christy, what is the Alchemist Challenge? All right. So, since this book is about you, as in you, the listener, or me, we want you to consider reading this book with another person. Usually when we read books, we're just doing it for ourselves, or maybe we're in a book club or whatever. But uh, we're going to encourage you to find someone that in your family, maybe, or in your community that maybe isn't even of your generation uh, generation or two older or younger and then as you go through the story together read the story but take the time to talk about the allegory about what he's saying think about each section listen to the podcast talk about his ideas but relate it to your reality what do you think is your personal legend? What is the universe saying to you? What are the negative voices in your head trying to make you a victim? Where are you finding beauty in the world? Some of Quaid's ideas are really far out there, and uh, maybe you may or may not agree with them, but I think you'll enjoy discussing this. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were at a restaurant with some friends after school on Friday, which honestly we're prone to do every Friday after school, and I was talking about some random essay assignment that I'd given to students about identifying a, a point in their life that they had changed their mind about something, an event that made them think about the world a little bit differently. And one of our friends looked over and said, huh, Christy, if you had signed that to yourself, what would you write about? And I really had to think, and I had never really, even though I'd given this assignment to many students for a long time, I didn't really had ever really taken the time to think about it for myself. And we all sat around that table and talked about out loud. It was a fun thing. You know, the things that had made us change the way that we looked at the world. So we have his rules for success on the website if you want them. These are the books, the rules that we're going to uncover as we go through the story, the allegory lessons, if you want to call it that way. Uh, But they're short. They're simple. Read them with another person. Talk to it talk to them. 
I would call it omen seeking. Oh my gosh, <laughs> omen seeking. Yeah, we're gonna have to talk about omens in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he would say. That's exactly what he would say. Uh, so all right. So when we look at his life, really the alchemist is clearly you telling his own success story. He's basically saying, "This is what I did, and look what happened to me." And of course, I know. How do you argue with success at this magnitude? Now. We can't assume everybody's going to follow the omens and discover the personal legend and end up with all the success that Quail you had. But anyway, he says that's his journey. That's his story. I think he would say that's my journey. That's my story. And that's not to say you don't have your own journey and you don't have your story. Maybe you won't become a gazillionaire professional writer, but... But, Quail, you would say true, but uh, you do have to live your legend. So, uh, I do want to make a small disclaimer. In the past, when we read through these interpretations, I read through a lot of, just so you know, my process for preparing for these podcasts, I read a lot of literary criticism as well as the books and kind of feel for what people have been saying about these books for a long time. Uh, although I did read quite a bit about this, I kind of threw it in the wastebasket uh, because I didn't think it was in the spirit of Quaidu to look at literary criticisms in this way. Uh, he wanted the book to be somewhat simple and unsophisticated, so, but yet not, uh, because it was his personal story. So I took that as my own challenge and have made my own personal kind of interpretations as what I think the allegory means. So uh, take it for what it's worth. Think about it, challenge it, discuss it mull it over, but more than anything, uh, enjoy the process of thinking about Santiago as you. Well, what's interesting about that is that he uh, purposely did not make this a deep story with lots of twists and turns, but he does employ his rules for life. And all I can say is it's the most widely translated book in the world. Uh, it's one of the one of history's biggest sellers ever. So there is something that transcends culture in these rules. He's going to lay out in a very simple story. So, all right. So before we get into the steps, let's do our usual thing and give the story spoiler so everyone knows the story before we talk about it. Ready? Let's do it. Here's a very short synopsis. So, Santiago, an Andalusian shepherd boy, he has a dream about finding treasure in Egypt under the pyramids, a gypsy woman and an old man claiming to be Melchizedek, a mysterious king, advise him to pursue the treasure. Uh, and he goes on to say, realizing one's destiny is a person's only obligation. And when you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you to achieve it, which is a theme of the book. With the courage of the adventurer, Santiago sells off his sheep and he travels to Tangiers. A thief will steal all of his money and Santiago will take a job with a crystal merchant who unwittingly is going to teach Santiago important lessons for his long journey ahead. That's about as short as we can make it. <laughs> and when you say it that way, it doesn't sound like a very interesting story. <laughs> no. Well, we, we abridged uh, a few things here and there, but you get the high points right there. Yeah. All right. What so, we want to go away with is that Santiago, Melchizedek, they have an exchange. That's where we learn about the personal legend and lesson big number one, and then we're off. Off we go. So let's look at Coelho's, we're going to call them Coelho's Rules for Success in narrative form. Okay. And rule number one, 
leave the sheep. So he's sitting there in these sheep and he's mulling over his life and he notices that they're just eating and sleeping and they're really passionate about eating and sleeping. <laughs> and he's just lost his uh, passion for that sort of thing. Uh, and he decides that, you know, it's time for him to answer this call. And leaving the sheep means that hearing the voice is what Quaid is going to call of the soul of the world that is connected to everything. And you really don't have a contr- any control over it. But that soul of the world is going to make a call to you, a call to adventure, and you're going to make a decision. All right, I'm taking the challenge. Okay. I want to say a couple of things about this. First of all, I want to talk about sheep. Okay. okay. So rule number one, leave the sheep. Now, in our modern American interpretation, we have a tendency to say, don't be a sheep. Don't be a follower. Think for yourself. Be a leader. We harp on those kind of things. But sheep like, get a bad rap. They get a bad reputation, and it's not deserved. And in the book, <laughs> Santiago's not unhappy with the sheep. While he was with the sheep, he learned sheep culture. He learned sheep language. He learned sheep emotions. He invested in the sheep when he was with them. So leaving the sheep at this point is not necessarily the idea. These sheep are going nowhere and they're dead weight. You must get away from them. No, it's kind of like, all right, I've learned lessons from this group. Now it's kind of time to move on. And secondly, this whole idea, okay, this is interesting. When uh, Quayle talks about this idea of the soul of the world, I have to get psychological for just a moment. Now, the soul of the world, how could that possibly be psychological? It's clearly mystical. It's clearly (laughs) mystical, and I can't explain it. But I have a very interesting anecdote that I want to throw in there just as a way of maybe highlighting this from a different perspective. So there is a uh, neuroscientist named Jill Bolte-Taylor. Some of you may have seen her TED Talk. What's fascinating about this woman is obviously she's a literal brain scientist and one day she has a stroke. And the great thing about her story is that she's halfway through the stroke, she's conscious she's having a stroke. And she loses a lot of the functions of the left hemisphere of her brain. And now she's operating with the right hemisphere of her brain. And what's interesting about her describing her own experience is that she kept saying that she felt expansive, she felt huge, she felt connected with the universe, she didn't feel the boundaries of her body, that there was an understanding that she was energy and everything around her was energy. And in her discussion, what she talks about is one of the functions of the left hemisphere is to try to bring order out of all the stimulus that you receive in the environment, visual stimulus, auditory stimulus. The left side of your brain is really... Um, interested in trying to organize that and make it meaningful. And she said the right side of the brain was about experiencing the connectedness of energy. So that's about as mystical as I can get with that. And yet scientific. So science may suggest there is a soul of the universe. It might. But if you want an interesting video to watch, watch uh, her Jill Bolte-Taylor's Stroke of Insight video. You'll, You'll be impressed with what your brain does. Well, it is an interesting dialogue that the East, as in the Eastern side of the or planet Earth and the Western side of the world. Culturally have, speaking. Yeah, they've been debating this idea yes, uh, of the interconnectedness uh, of people. And Coit is going to try to take those ideas and kind of put them together. The idea is there is a sense that people do feel a restlessness 
from time to time and where does that come from is it biological he's gonna say it's not it's, it's the universe the universe it's the soul and it's you. coming for you it's calling to you to adventure and whether those sheep are enjoying you know some olive covered pizzas or not <laughs> time to get up and go look you for up some hawaiian pizza oh, no. and seek out the real adventure no, hawaiian pizza is is unforgivable <laughs> i'm so, sure there are many listeners who agree uh rule number one leave the sheep all right let's go on to new rule number two which i think is awesome and it's not even too mystically far out there rule number two be the protagonist in your own life. Before I go any farther, please remind us what a protagonist is, because that's a literary term. Yeah, the protagonist is, uh, it, you can think of it as the hero, but sometimes they're not heroic. But they're the, the character who the story is actually about. The idea that this is your life story. You're not assisting somebody else's life story. Everyone gets their own life story. And making that happen sometimes isn't all that easy. Oh, no, it's not. Uh, as a matter of fact, we've come across this great idea that you and I have discussed regarding this in that if you are not the protagonist, if you are not the main person in your own life, somebody will come along and draft you into their story and make you subservient to their story. And uh, we could get into a big discussion about psychological boundaries and things of that nature. But I think the lesson is really great. Be important in your own life. And Quillio is not saying that as a selfish, self-absorbed, narcissistic thing. He's just right, saying, that was the point of the prologue. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's just be present and be important in your own life story because there are a lot of people who are not. They forget that or they've not picked that up or they've lost it. Well, and the idea that if you'll take care of yourself, then you can take care of other people. I mean, he's clearly not living a selfish life. He's taking care of the sheep. In fact, his journey involves the next step is going to a community where he's going to shear his sheep and then sell his sheep. So he's not being selfish. He is being responsible. Okay. Um and the second part of this was basically take responsibility for yourself. That's part of being the protagonist in your own life, realizing you do have to own your choices and take responsibility for those choices. And he kind of goes through this process. You know, it's not like he just automatically knew what he wanted to do. He knew he wanted to travel, and he says that from an early childhood time, he had wanted to travel, and his parents were disappointed in him because they wanted him to go to the seminary and uh, have a respectable job. And that is straight from Quedu's life because that's exactly yes, what his parents he did. did. Yeah. And he chose not to do that, and his parents came around. And in this book, this guy's parents came around when he decided to be this lowly shepherd boy. But it was the idea that it was it was his journey, and he wanted to make it, and he wouldn't have been happy if he had live the life that his parents had set for him to live as respectable as it could have been. And so he says, the jacket has a purpose and the boy hat, he says, and I have a purpose and my purpose is going to be to, to journey onward, to travel onward. And even though he doesn't really know what all that means and he does some weird things, because when you don't know what you're doing, but you know what you want to do, you're going to do some weird things like trial and error. Yeah. Like, See the gypsy. <laughs> <laughs> or talk to the guy in the bar who will steal his money. Yeah, sometimes it goes you well. You mistakes. And sometimes it doesn't. 
Well, being a protagonist in your own life is rule number two, and uh, it's not always overt. We've got a few lines in the book uh, where he just says this in passing, states this idea, such as, if someone isn't what others want them to be, others become angry. Then he goes on to say, everyone seems to have a clear idea of how other people should live their lives, but none about his or her own. Another line is, um, accept responsibility to make your own decisions. Don't allow others to decide for you. There is a steep price for that. Well, Melchizedek is the one that taught him that because, you know, Melchizedek says, go to the pyramids. And he said, okay. And he says, that's going to cost you. And he charged him. (laughs) And he said... Uh, and the book says from then on he would make his own decisions because mm-hmm. the idea being even if you tell me to do the right thing and I do it, if it's not my decision, if I'm not in control, there's something to be lost there, which is interesting because it's easy to say, well, I want to take the advice of the majority of the, what would most people do in this place or in this under these circumstances and go with that, go with the odds. Maybe that's the democratic approach, but He's not saying that the democracy works for your own personal life. Well, to tag on to that whole idea, later on in chapter one, after he gets robbed by the thief, he's going to have a moment where he's really dejected. He's alone in the square by himself, and he blames God. Yeah. And then later on, he's not going to do that. He's going to pick up the personal responsibility again and move on. And that's kind of a theme throughout the book, the idea of meaning if you will take that responsibility, you can move forward. Victims, you know, kind of lag behind, even if, you know, they were unjustly or it wasn't really their fault, the bad things that happened to them, which just happens a lot of times. Sometimes we we have bad things that happen because we did it to ourselves. And sometimes we have bad things that happen because we didn't just, I don't know, either way to him, quote is saying it really doesn't matter. Uh, follow the legend where whatever that's going to be. And before we move on to rule number three, I kind of want to sum this up and say that these rules are not stated overtly in the book, but they are in all these passages like we just... And they're not just in the first section. We're going to trace these again in it. The entire book. Right, because in the second section, he's going to take these little lessons and then he expects you to argue with him and he's going to answer those arguments with like different, well, what about in this time? What about under these circumstances? And he's going to (laughs) kind of engage you in this, I don't know, allegorical, metaphorical way. All right. Well, tell us about number three. Number three is identify a passion, a dream, a goal, a motivating drive. And he's going to term this your personal legend. If you're going to think about the way Shakespeare would turn it. It's a reason to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous mm. fortune. Outrageous fortune is the bad things that right. are sure to come. And he's going to say that in some ways you don't pick those. That's the idea that the universe picks it for you. So the personal legend is a calling. And that's where it kind of gets crazy. And he's going to say that your obligation in this world, and this is where, you know, just take the hocus pocus. We as let the it author will. do his thing. Yeah. He gets to do um, what he, he says, wants. Let the universe call you through your passions, through your interests, through your wiring of your brain, if you want to call it whatever, and find it, latch on to it, and pursue it. Create a trajectory of your life out of those things. And he's going to call that. His personal legend. Which I want to say, I'm really glad we kind of give that an operational definition. 
So personal legend is not some spooky voodoo. It's your passion, your dream, your goal, your motivating drive. Well, and then it's the spooky voodoo. Oh, because and where the, does that come from? And the universe telling you, <laughs> go do it. Yeah. So, you know, why did we want to do a podcast? You know, did we think of that or did the universe The universe put told it, us yeah, to. Yeah, I think, you know, <laughs> why are we teachers? You know, I love teaching. It's a passion. I, I engage these kids and... We connect year after year after year, and many people just think that's the, the worst. You know, you're never getting out of high school. I hated uh, high school. No, you it's know. not for the faint of heart. <laughs> well, and it's just not for everyone, but everyone is like that about something. And he's going to say, you know, everyone has one. And we have this come up all the time. I, I teach 10th graders this year, and I had a kid, I was telling them to pursue their passion, you know, get involved in clubs, go to ball games, you know, all these things that we tell kids to do at the beginning of the year and we're trying to get them to hook in and this kid just goes in desperation I don't know what my passion is and you know I, that's understandable well it's somewhat ex- <laughs> excusable in younger people and you and I had a conversation a while back about following your passion and I had to say we well, have to realize everybody follows their passion for some people their passion is inactivity and they put a lot of energy into becoming inactive or creative ways to do that but nonetheless they're following their passion well i put a kibosh on that cuz i had a kid <laughs> say that i my passion is sleep i want to go to sleep and i said that's a bad passion you know you find so judgmental it is judgmental but i'm correct in that judgment oh, is it and he's going to say i will say this i was like you i kind of said I had this idea that passions can develop over the course of your life, and obviously that's true. But Kuwaiti is going to make the argument that it's there's something in your heart, even as a young... This is what he says. When you're young, you know what your personal legend is. It's what you wanted to accomplish. You're not afraid to dream and to yearn for, every, for everything that you would like to seek happen. But as time passes, a mysterious force begins to convince you it's impossible. So I don't know if there's this tension between an evolving passion or is it true that something is always in there and you've just got to dig it out? Well, can I be a killjoy for a moment? Absolutely not. (laughs) I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. Because it's commonly seen in movies that uh, people talk about, oh, you have to reconnect with what you were, with your childhood joy and things of those nature and that that's where your true essence lies, which is really where this whole idea goes from what Quayle was saying. But the reality is um, the demands of survival and maturity and growing up change that. It's not that it kills something innate in you. It just decides whether or not it's even possible. Or perhaps you refine it. And I don't think that Quayle would even argue for that. If you look at his life, you know, he went from being that, crazy rocker you know in the hippie kind of generation to developing into a, an accomplished writer so clearly there is a an evolution he is an outlier i just don't even know that he could be counted <laughs> amongst the normal humans for his experience but. well perhaps not but this idea that there is i guess maybe never lose the the curiosity and desire to grow or pursue or to have passion maybe would be uh, would be the challenge there, and just okay. keeping trying to f- to find it. You know, if you don't have a passion, say, ah, I'm going to try this one and see what, and sure, give it a go. Yeah, the whole idea is if one passion meets a dead end, that doesn't mean you give up on life. <laughs> you, right, you go another direction. Um, all right, ready to go on to rule number four? Rule number four. Uh, this, it gets no better. It gets even <laughs> it gets even more mystical. 
Rule number four, learn to recognize omens. <laughs> I love omens. Oh. I've started to are we incorporate gonna be able to, that word all the time oh, now. No. <laughs> are we going to be able to operationally define omens? I don't think we are. Anyway, uh, so he's had the same dream twice. The, there's a theme of people wanting tenth of his treasure, one-tenth of his treasure. Uh, he runs into the old man, the king of Salem, which basically means king of peace in Melchizedek. I want to so, pause there for a second. I, okay. I think it's worthy of note. You know, obviously that's a biblical allusion out of the Old Testament. It's yes. one of the earliest stories of Judaism. And the idea that uh, the king of peace, you know, there's peace in the idea of looking for your passion. That's not a place of angst. Oh, we've moved on from passion now. We're on to omens. I know, but the omens are going to bring you peace because you're going to have this excitement, I think. Okay. Of, of, of looking for them and engaging them. And I just think it's an interesting... I think actually what you said is true. We've left passion and we've moved to omens and there's where you find peace. Just saying that's an idea. Oh, you just discover that. I'm just saying okay. it's there. It's interesting. Well, and to put uh, omens maybe in a in a more approachable idea for a reader reading this book, omens can be something as simple as opportunities. Yeah. Look at the opportunities that open up and go for them. We're not necessarily talking about throwing chicken bones on the ground and reading some kind of mysterious meaning out of that. Although he does follow a butterfly in the book. Yes, well, there is that. Okay. <laughs> and I think Quaid may be prone to, I think he said, I heard him in an interview say one time that, he knows it's time to write a new book when a feather falls. In From front. the sky. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I mean, you can take it as far as your scientific mind will allow you to take it. And you may not be, I know you're not chasing down the ducks am, at the pond. <laughs> I am not resisting him scientifically. I'm just trying to put in maybe more uh, approachable terms. But go ahead. So the idea being that, you know, there are going to be opportunities. There's going to be things. Yes. And then... Events will open up. Events will open up. Uh, and then you follow the omens. That's rule number five. That's rule number five. So follow the omens until you make it happen, no matter the cost, the sacrifice, where it takes you. And I will say, you know, I've tried to practice this. Um, I, we, I threw out an omen. Uh one of our favorite um, mentors is uh, Susan and Beckett from the History Chicks. And oh, yeah. I wrote her, and she wrote me back, love you, Susan. And it was, an, it was an omen. <laughs> it was an omen that we're going we're gonna to be podcasters together one day. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. Good luck with that. Yeah. But so, it was very, very nice of her to be supportive. So you follow the omens. You look for them. You check them out. You chase them down. And uh, he says, treasure is uncovered by the force of flowing water, and it's buried by the same currents. Now, if that's not enigmatic, I don't know what an Mm. enigma is, but there is something there that treasure is uncovered by the force of flowing. Yeah, by flowing water. Because there's the concept here of the principle of favorability. And, of course, everyone's favorite line from the book the universe is conspiring with you to help you. I love it. Okay. Yes, the and universe is not against you. It's conspiring to help you. So let it. Yes, which is the biggest and most famous point out of the whole book. The quote from the book says, and this, uh, God has prepared a path for everyone to follow 
You just have to read the omens that he left you. And of course, that can be interpreted in any kind of religious tradition or even an agnostic tradition. Just the idea that if you're going to embrace the universe of the soul, perhaps the energy out there is not trying to kill you. It's trying to... (laughs) It's trying to give you a break and help you out. Just let it help you. Well, I will tell you right now, every evolutionary-based science will disagree with that. Wah, wah. <laughs> but here's the deal. It worked for a little old Santiago. Oh, he, you, you, cannot, you cannot ignore his success. <laughs> so Santiago is going to meet the gypsy. She tells, tells him to go to Egypt. He's going to leave there all mad at her because she probably took advantage of him. He's going to run into the old king. The king is going to give him this thing called the Urim and Thummim. <laughs> yes, which is Urim also, and Yes, it's also comes straight out of the Old Testament of the Bible, where you would throw it up, and it is these a bit, are stones. Yeah, these are stones. It's like dice, and if they mm-hmm. go heads, you do something. If they go tails, and it's the universe that decides. Uh, I've never really made decisions using a process like that. Flipping but, a coin. <laughs> yeah. okay. But uh, he's going to, uh, Santiago is going to give it a go. And he winds up on a boat to Africa. The last lesson that, uh, that the king gives him before he goes is our rule number six. Right. Which is, interestingly enough, look for beauty along the way. And this was uh, depicted in the story where he tells a story about a young boy was put in a very elaborate, uh, beautiful castle full of beautiful things, and he was told to carry around a spoonful of oil, probably olive oil, (laughs) a spoonful of oil and not spill it. So the young boy carries a spoonful of oil, and he comes back, and the master says, did you notice all the beautiful things? He said, no, I was busy trying not to spill the oil. He said, we'll take another spoonful of oil, this time walk through the castle, but look at all the beautiful things. The boy comes back and he said, oh, I saw many beautiful things, but you spilled the oil. So the lesson was learn to observe all the beauty around you and pay attention to the specific in front of you at the same time. And that's hard to do. But and I will say, have you seen the drivers in this town? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they're not keeping the task at hand. But I will say that's a lesson. Talk about lessons learned late in life. In fact, you taught me that lesson because I'm one of these staring at the oil in the spoon types. I can really focus in it's it's part of my ADD I can zero in and exclude the whole world out don't even hear what you're talking about and sitting back and just allowing myself to look and for the beauty along the way has really been a lesson a, a exercise that I've you know just picked up over the last few years and that's made my I will I will say that it's fun it's fun to see beautiful things and listen well, to music and connect to the metaphysical world in that way just saying (laughs) well i'm a huge fan of admiring your work when you create something when you build something when you put something together take some time to sit down look at it and and be pleased with what you did and the works of others you know when you go to a place like florence or uh i've never been out west to the uh to the Oregon and Washington, but when I even look at those pictures, I mean, you can—they're awe-inspiring, and yeah. that's the the marvels of the world. And yet, of course, people that only do that 
drive, that's too much artist in you. It drives you nuts. You can't, you can't stand being around those people. You never get anywhere. Well, I will tell you as a musician, it's a difficult balance. <laughs> you can deal with some brilliantly gifted people that are so flaky that they, you can't have a conversation with them. But it all comes down to this, this balancing act of taking risks. He says, push out your individuality. Don't be paralyzed and engage the world, and there's beauty to be found there. Again, movement, action, responsibility. Yeah, movement, action. So we get to the last rule, uh, and in his case, he goes to Tangiers, and he's, he's a Spanish boy, he speaks Spanish, his religion is Catholicism, that's where he knows, what he knows, and he goes over there to Tangiers and is completely different. They're, they're, he wants wine because, of course, that's all they drink in Spain. And he gets over to uh, Tangiers, and it's like there's, it's against the law because it's a Muslim country, and they have different rules and cultures. And he can't talk to anybody, and he, he doesn't can speak do, the language. Doesn't speak the language, and he doesn't understand anything that's going on. So he's completely, uh, I guess, numb or what's the word, mute and deaf. But he realizes that he's going to say the way that. Kuwaiti says that there's a language of the universe and you can talk to people or communicate really through body language, through you can just notice things. And he's this is going to be one of the most important threads throughout the next section of, of understanding the language of the universe is really how you're going to know what decisions that you really do need to take instead of just looking at the deductive reasons. Look at the language of the universe uh, and that's how you're going to learn to navigate the universe and I would like to say that sounds as mystical as any of the other rules that we talked about in the language of the universe but I will say this one of my favorite psychologists is David G. Myers he's written a book called Intuition and it ties in with what we're talking about He um, in, in the book he talks about several studies, case studies that were done on people who had severe damage to their right hemispheres and they only had really their left hemispheres to work with. Well, the left hemisphere is going to be more prone to logic and reason and, and organization and your language centers and things of that nature. And so for those of you who are Star Trek fans, um, these people were as close to Spock as could be imagined. And they didn't have the right hemisphere interfering with some of the processing that was going on. Well, you would think these people would make very rational, logical detail-driven, data-oriented decisions. And what he found out in his research is they made horrible decisions, terrible decisions. You need the intuitive right hemisphere to help interrogate, or not, excuse me, interpret the facts that are coming in from the left side. So the brain has to have the factual, it has to have the narrative and the intuitive and so I guess you've got to have some of that language of the universe thing going on. I think on that's it, exactly. Right yeah. Put it together. Because he says in the beginning of the book that he felt like he was talking to the sheep. Yes. And so there's some way to communicate, via, call it intuition, call it language of the universe, whatever, that you pick up and then it helps you. And it, yes. and, in, and in a very real way, guide you to where you need to go. So that's exactly what... That, that's exactly what he does. And, of course, the beginning, he doesn't do that. He, he talks to this guy, and he allows this guy to talk him into giving him all his money. He feels like a complete idiot. Uh, but he picks himself up, decides to pursue onward. Even if he had had a big fail, 
and he listens to the soul and he winds up at the next key character uh, in our story, the crystal merchant. And so how does he choose the crystal merchant? He just walks down the street and he stops in front of a shop and it says that his the practice eyes of the crystal merchant could see that the boy had no money to spend. So they have this kind of intuitive conversation, but there's something about this guy that he's drawn to, that the boy is drawn to, and they make some sort of intuitive connection. Well, one last thing about intuition. It's not voodoo. Mm -hmm. Uh, Intuition is a literal function of your right side of your brain looking for patterns in the environment. And you look for patterns to assess safety, danger, threats, things that you need. And we've learned as humans to do that by looking at facial features and reactions. And yes, some people have intuition that is very accurate. Some people don't. But you, what explains why you have some of the initial reactions to people that you meet. Right. And I think this is exactly what's being detailed in this last section of the book. So he engages the the merchant. The merchant engages him. They have a brief conversation. It's kind of like they're feeling each other out. One invites the other out to eat. Uh, he, uh, he says, let's go have some lunch, said the crystal merchant. They put a sign on the door. Um, and then, you know, they kind of, through this communication, I guess some verbal, some nonverbal, they 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 can create a trust, and it's this trust that is going to lead him to his next omen. Oh my! The next uh, <laughs> voice from the universe. All yes. Right. So we'll stop there. That's a good breaking point before we jump into the second half of the story next time. But I want to reiterate the rules before we leave. So let's go over them real quick. What's number one, Christy? Leave the sheep. Number two, be the protagonist in your own life. Identify a passion. That's three. A dream, a goal, a motivating drive, a personal legend. Number four, learn to recognize omens. Five, follow the omens. Number six, look for beauty along the way. And what's our last one? Listen to the language of the universe. All right, that should be enough for everybody to think about before we come back next time and get into the second half of the book. Thanks for being along with us. Be sure that you check us out on our How to Love Lit podcast page. We have lots of great resources there for teachers that they can use in a classroom. We have poetry supplements where Christy will teach you poetry like you've never been taught before. We are also active on our How to Love Lit podcast Facebook page and our How to Love Lit podcast Instagram page. Feel free to join us, follow along, keep up, see what we're doing. Thanks for being with us today. We'll catch you next week. Peace out. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.